The following podcast is based on actual X-Files cases. Did you bring me my hearts? Yesterday you said something about me taking it personally. Why did you say that to me? What do you know about my sister? You bring in my hearts. And maybe I'll tell you more. I did. Welcome back to X-Files Truth. Today's file is Paper Hearts. X-File number classified. The plot. Fox Mulder dreams of a red light that leads him to the corpse of a young girl buried in a park in Manassas, Virginia. When he awakens, he heads to the park and finds the girl's skeleton. The girl was determined to have been murdered by John Lee Roach, a serial killer who murdered 13 girls throughout the 1980s. His modus operandi was cutting a heart out of the clothes of each victim. Mulder had captured Roach by deducing that he committed the murders while traveling as a vacuum cleaner salesman. Roach's hearts were never found, although he confesses to all of the murders. Scully's autopsy of the skeleton finds that the victim died in 1975, suggesting that Roach's killing spree started much earlier than the FBI had previously thought. The agents search Roach's old car, where they discover 16 cut-out hearts. Mulder and Scully subsequently visit Roach in prison, hoping to learn the identities of the remaining two victims. Roach, however, tries to play mind games with Mulder. Mulder, long time no see. Got a new partner. Agent Scully. So what's up? Found Addie Sparks, John. Congratulations, I guess. We also found your cloth hearts. All 16 of them. Huh. 16 victims, John. How come you said there were only 13? I don't know. Yeah, 13 sounds more magical, you know? Why don't you tell us about the last two victims, then? You're in here for life. You've got nothing to lose. Yeah, I got nothing to gain. Now, you can gain one moment of decency in your life. You can finally let those families put their daughters to rest. I understand you take this very personally, Mulder. How about this? Sink one from there and I'll tell you. Trust a child molester? You bring my hearts and give them back to me? I'll tell you everything you want to know. Coming out. That night, Mulder dreams of the night of Samantha's abduction, seemingly showing that his sister was abducted by Roach rather than aliens. The next day, Mulder asks Roach where he was the night Samantha was abducted. Roach claims he was on Martha's Vineyard and he had sold a vacuum cleaner to Mulder's father. Mulder later finds the vacuum cleaner in his mother's house. After convincing Assistant Director Skinner to grant them further access to Roach, the agents question the killer 
and are told the location of one of his remaining victims. He also claims exactly what happened the night of Samantha's abduction. I'm not talking to you if you're going to hit me again. No, you don't get to touch them. They stay in the bag. Name them. Well, I, I think you know one of them already. Prove it. Watergate was on TV. You and your sister were sitting in front of it, playing a board game uh, with little red and uh, blue plastic pieces. And you wanted to watch a TV show, the, the one with Bill Bixby. What the heck was the name of that thing? How could you know what I said? I was watching from the window. I was, I was very careful. If that's true, tell me where my sister is. Pick her out. What? You choose the one that was your sister, and I'll tell you where she is. I mean, come on, it's a 50-50 chance. Either way, I'm giving you a victim. That one. You sure you want that one? No, just kidding. It's, it's a good choice. An autopsy of the body reveals it does not belong to Samantha. Roach tells Mulder the final body is Samantha's, but says he will only reveal where it is if Mulder takes him to the scene of her abduction. Mulder secretly releases Roach from prison and brings him to Martha's Vineyard. Upon arriving at Mulder's family's summer house, Roach explains exactly what happened the night of Samantha's abduction. However, Mulder tells him that the house was bought by his father after Samantha's abduction, convincing him that Roach is not telling the truth. No one home? Sat on this couch. You and your dad bought the vacuum. You ready? Go. November 27, 1973. I watched the house for hours. I parked across the way out over there. So I was just casing. I wasn't planning for this to be the night. But then all of a sudden your parents leave and I figure. Where'd they go? House next door. Play Pinochle, I don't know. Whatever it was people did back then. Go on. So after they're gone, I get out of my car and I move closer. And I watch you and your sister playing that board game. A little bit after eight. I'm about ready, so I move to the junction box. I cut the power, and the lights go off. And then I moved around to the front door, and I was ready to kick the door in. It was unlocked. It was 1973. It was a different world back then. And then what did you do? Well, you remember that. I, I came in the front door, and you tried to get to your father's gun. I, I give you credit for that, but then you, you sort of froze, and then I took your sister away from all this to a happier place. That's exactly how it happened? Right here in this room? Yeah. Wrong house. My father bought this house after he and my mother divorced. This house is in West Tisbury. The house that Samantha was abducted from is in Chilmark. That's six miles from here. You screwed up. You were never here. You didn't take Samantha. Wishful thinking. No. 
No, but I think I know what happened. Somehow you got inside my dreams. Come again? I profiled you. I got inside your head. Maybe you got inside mine. Maybe some nexus or connection was formed between us. And through that, you got access to my memories of my sister Samantha. And you used them against me for this. You're just resisting me. And you're in the wrong house, you stupid son of a bitch. You were never here, you liar. It's geography, man. It's geography. It's, it was 23 years ago. That was geography we're talking about. But you remember all the other details so vividly. That's because you watched it through my eyes. Through my dreams. I hear things about you, Mulder. You got hurt? I heard you go after aliens from space. It's like your world will be okay as long as you can believe in, like, flying saucers. But I'm telling you the God's honest truth. And I can see you're not as open-minded as you think you are. Malta plans to bring Roach back to prison, but following another dream about Samantha, awakens to find Roach gone with his badge, gun, and phone stolen. Using Mulder's credential, Roach kidnaps a girl in Swampscott, Massachusetts, whom he met on his flight with Mulder to Boston. Scully and Skinner arrive the next day, and the agents head to the site of Roach's old apartment in Boston. They find him with the girl in an abandoned trolley bus nearby. Roach holds the gun on the girl and tells Mulder that he'll never know for sure whether the last victim is Samantha or not if he kills him. Mulder is then forced to shoot Roach as he starts to pull the trigger of the stolen gun. I'm beginning to believe we do share that nexus you spoke of. You always seem to find me. Are you okay, Caitlin? Good. My name is Fox, and I'm going to take you home. I have your gun, Fox. Caitlin, can you do me a favor? Can you count to 20? Can you do that? Will you close your eyes and count to 20 out loud? Quietly and slowly. One, two, three. I will shoot. Don't make this end badly. You're not giving me very much choice. I really don't want to go back to prison. Put the gun down, Roche! You have one left. How are you going to find it without me? How sure are you it's not cement? Huh? How do you know? In his office, Mulder stares at the final cloth heart and puts it away, unsure of whether it belonged to Samantha or not. Hand in your field report. And now for my field report for Paper Hearts. I liked Paper Hearts a lot better on the rewatch, and I actually sometimes mix this one up with the other episode about uh, Samantha being abducted which I'm drawing a blank on right now, but so I was thinking I didn't like this one as much because I'm not big on the other one. I don't like when they change the whole concept of Samantha being abducted by aliens, which totally fits the mythology of the X-Files, to something like this where she's uh, kidnapped or whatever. So despite that fact, 
this is a very good episode. I watched it again. I really liked it on the rewatch. I watched it a couple times to make sure I, you know, hit all the parts and I wasn't mixing it up with the other episode. It does have a lot of good parts. It actually was a little bit more interesting to me because I live right in this area. All this happens on the north shore of Massachusetts. So I, I'm in Swampscott all the time. That bus graveyard, I think it was supposed to be in Revere, which is right, in, right nearby Swampscott. And there actually is a place called Wonderland. It's one of the T-stops on the Blue Line, which those trolleys that they show on the episode, they're not blue, but the real ones are blue. And they're on regular trains. They're not those electric ones. You see the... Um, I don't know what you call those electrical connectors that are on top of all the buses in the episode that the old-fashioned trolleys had to power them. But the blue line we have is just like a regular train. But it does go through a place called Wonderland. The Wonderland is named after a dog track, and it's just one of the stops at Wonderland. So it's kind of neat how that worked out. And we also get a nice reference to Reggie Perdue, which was one of Mulder's first bosses who we actually got to meet in I think it was Ghost in the Machine in the very first season and right near the beginning so it was kind of neat to have that tie into the very beginning of the series and hearing uh, Reggie Perdue's name again. So I guess now it's time for the Mythometer. This one is definitely a hybrid because we get Mulder's mother, we get a talk about Samantha and Skinner's in this one. We get to talk about the abduction and everything, so it's got the mythology feel to it, but it's definitely not a mythology episode. So Some people, I think, actually consider it a mythology episode, but if Samantha is captured by a child molester, it's I don't consider that part of the mythology. So, to each his own, I guess, but I'm calling it a hybrid. On a scale of 1 to 10, compared to all X-Files episodes, it's a lot better than I remembered. And I would definitely give it an 8, 8.5 maybe, and compared to other Monster of the Weeks, uh, probably 8.5 to 9. Like I said, I liked it a lot better than I remembered, and I'm glad I got to rewatch it now because I hadn't seen it in a long time. For the sequelizer, it would be pretty tough because Mulder kills him at the end, John Lee Roach. So I can't think of any possible way that we could get a sequel out of this one. And that is all I can think of for Paper Hearts off the top of my head. I haven't listened to the files that the other agents have sent in yet, so now I'm even more looking forward to hearing those files after I wrap up here. So I can't wait for that. So let's get started with that and head down to the chem lab and see what Agent Angela has for us for the chemistry between Mulder and Scully for Paper Hearts. Tell me everything that happened Tell me everything you saw Hello, agents. I admit it, I've been looking forward to doing our podcast episode on Paper Hearts for a while now. It's definitely one of my favorites out of this entire X-Files season. It's got a very compelling Monster of the Week storyline, some great interaction between Mulder and Scully, and a look at an empathetic side of Fox Mulder that we, the audience, don't always get to see. It's a Monster of the Week episode, Yet it's one of those that's extra memorable to me because it ties into some of the mythology as well. 
Some other episodes do this too, but for any number of reasons, this story stands out so much more. Mulder's lured out of bed in the middle of the night, seemingly in a dream, where he follows a strange red light to Bosch's Run Park. The light forms a heart on the chest of a little girl who's apparently dead, sinking into the earth. He jolts awake and, true to Mulder form, heads out to the park for real, with the conviction that it wasn't simply a harmless dream, that there was something to it. At 5 a.m. on a Sunday, he brings in a forensic excavation team to look for evidence of any little girl's real-life murder in the same park. Scully expresses her usual incredulity that he'd bring in FBI manpower over something he saw in a dream. But of course he turns out to be right, as they uncover Roche's 14th victim. I really like the exchange between Mulder and Scully in the basement office, as he tells her about the infamous and scary child murderer John Lee Roche. She sees how this case clearly affects him, and the dreams are only bringing more of it back. Scully's definitely giving the recurring dreams some credence, to an extent, thinking just maybe he solved the mystery of the 14th victim in his sleep, reminding him of what he told her once. He said that a, a dream is an answer to a question we haven't learned how to ask. This is quite different from the Scully we saw in the earliest seasons, the one who dismissed anything not hard science as ridiculous. We the audience can tell how far they've come as partners, developing mutual respect for one another's ideas. Scully now has a definite respect for Mulder's work as a profiler, and thus for his insights into the human psyche. This is a really tough case type Mulder and Scully are dealing with, the subject of kidnapped and murdered children, a crime that's sadly ripped from the headlines, then and now. I think their meeting with Addie Sparks' father is very sad, and I have nothing but respect for the sensitive way Mulder and Scully gave him the news that his daughter has been found. At least now he can lay her to rest. Mulder and Scully searched the car Roche once owned, and I think the new owner expresses, with one question, a lot of the fascination many of us have with famous serial killers. Honest-to-God serial killer once owned my car? Even as we're horrified and repulsed by these human monsters at the same time. After finding two more hearts, and therefore two more victims, in the camper shell of the car, Mulder and Scully confront the killer himself on a prison basketball court. Roche is fairly obviously a sociopath from one conversation with him. According to him, he's got nothing to lose, but nothing to gain. Nothing except maybe amusing himself by messing with Mulder's head. Mulder thinks he has Roche's number, and won't be pulled into trusting a child molester's twisted head games. But yes, he does take this case personally. In what I think is one of the most compelling scenes of Paper Hearts, he gets to relive, in another red light following dream, the night of Samantha's abduction. Only this time, she's taken away in the back of Roche's car as Mulder watches helplessly. I also think it was a smart choice on the part of the writers to have him relive it as an adult in the dream, rather than showing him as the 12-year-old he was. It shows how much the memory of it still haunts him, whatever actually did happen to her. Roche, of course, plays right into Mulder's vulnerability about his sister's abduction, leading him to believe he may have taken and killed her. Scully argues that he's only seeing that happen in his dreams, in so many words that he should take a step back and remember the difference between dreams and reality. Of course this is Mulder, and he's not going to be easily convinced there's not a blurred line there between the two. She goes on that he's simply having these dreams because of the emotions this case is stirring up in him. But she's also being the voice of reason and rationality, with plenty of sympathy. We can tell from the look on her face at the end of this speech that she feels bad for him, 
that she wishes there were something, anything, that could give him some peace of mind where the memory of his sister's abduction is concerned. Anymore, Mulder doesn't know what to believe at all, but he has to find out. He asks Scully point-blank if she ever really believed Samantha was taken by aliens. He gets the answer in her expression, and Scully has no real answer either as far as what she thinks actually happened to his sister. Scully does, however, back Mulder up when Skinner's yelling at him over this case, at least as far as the facts about Roche's location in the same area of Massachusetts at the same time Samantha disappeared. When it comes down to the wire, Scully is going to stick by their work, their pursuit of the truth, as far as the current facts match up with it. Mulder and Scully manage to get a Mad Hatter clue out of Roche, and they follow it to another missing girl's grave in the woods of West Virginia. It's not Samantha, though. No sign of a healed, broken collarbone like she had as a kid. We get to see how much more empathy both of them have. Scully for Mulder, and Mulder for whoever this unknown victim was. At this point, both of them, and myself as a viewer, have had more than enough of Roche's sick mind games. I love the moment when Scully tells Roche how he's going to rot in his cell forever. Very deservedly so. In the final act of this episode, Mulder takes a serious departure from rationality and FBI protocol, taking Roche into custody himself, without help from his partner or any other agents. Mulder does catch Roche in his lies by taking him to the wrong location on purpose, but that's a small victory in the face of the serial killer's escape soon after, and a monster like that is going to grab the first chance he gets to kidnap and kill again. Mulder, Scully, and Skinner thankfully track Roche down before he can claim another victim. At the start of the search, Mulder admits to Scully that Roche had been playing him the whole time, that she had been right. A little moment of role reversal there. In the end, Mulder and Scully get the truth, as far as the science will tell them, about the identity of the last unknown victim. Lab testing can tell them when the fabric of the last heart was manufactured, which doesn't narrow things down much at all. Very sadly, there will still be a family out there who may never know what really happened to their kidnapped daughter. For them, the tragic truth will probably always be out there. It's a sweet little moment at the very end when Scully suggests Mulder go home and get some sleep. Then she hugs him as they both laugh a little, realizing the irony of that statement. Until next time, this is Agent Angela. Please tell me what they looked like Did they seem afraid of you? They were kids that I once knew They were kids that I once knew I can say it but you won't believe me You say it do but you don't deceive me It's hard to know they're out there It's hard to know that you Counterintelligence Inside Information Hi gang, you're about to hear Counterintelligence with Agent Stone and this one is very disturbing and graphic so if you don't want to listen to this just fast forward 15 minutes ahead but I wanted to warn you ahead of time this is disturbing this is Agent Stone, 
with counterintelligence, with 4.8 paper hearts. Original air date December 15, 1996. Written by Vince Gilligan, directed by Rob Bowman. A dream is an answer to a question we haven't yet figured out how to ask. Child murder is the homicide of an individual under the age of 18. For this episode, we will take a look at a very historic profile. Albert Fish. Albert Hamilton Fish, born May 19, 1870, died January 16, 1936, was an American serial killer and cannibal. He was also known as the Gray Man, the Werewolf of Wisteria, and the Brooklyn Vampire. His confirmed victims are Francis X. McDonnell, age 8, July 15, 1924, Billy Gaffney, age 8, February 11, 1927, and Grace Budd, age 10, June 3, 1928. His possible victims include Yetta Abramwitz, age 12, 1927, Mary Ellen O'Connor, age 16, February 15, 1932, and Benjamin Collins, age 17, December 15, 1932. He was born in Washington, D.C. as Hamilton Fish, to Randall Fish of Kennebec, Maine, and his wife Ellen of Ireland. His father was 43 years older than his mother. Albert Fish later stated that his family had an extensive history of mental illness. He was the youngest of four, accompanying siblings Walter, Annie, and Edwin. Randall Fish died in 1875 in D.C. Albert claimed much later that his mother, unable to care for him, put him into an orphanage where he was ruthlessly whipped and beaten. He said that he was the only child who looked forward to the beatings. By 1890, Albert had arrived in New York City as a house painter. In 1898, he was married to Anna, nine years his junior, with whom he had six children, Albert, Anna, Gertrude, Eugene, John, and Henry. He also bigamously married on February 6, 1930 at Waterloo, New York to Miss Estrella Wilcox and divorced after one week. Fish had been arrested in May 1930 for sending an obscene letter to a Negro woman who answered an advertisement for a maid. He had been sent to Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital in 1930 and 1931 for observation following his arrests. A painter, he claimed to have drifted across the United States, murdering at least one person in each of the 23 states he had visited, as well as various other victims along the way, although this claim is not supported by any of the known documents of his life. Doctors examining him for his later trial claimed he was a sadomasochist, including in self-mutilation, driving needles into his body, mostly around his genitals. He said he tried sticking a needle in his scrotum, but it was too painful, and there were needles in his pelvis that were permanently embedded. He would stuff cotton balls soaked with lighter fluid into his rectum and set fire to them. He is said to have consumed not only the flesh of his victims, but also their urine, blood, and excrement. He attributed these tendencies to the abuse he suffered in childhood. He also claimed God sent him on missions to kill. His murders often involved slow torture. He would tie children up and whip them with a belt cut in half with nails sticking through to tenderize the flesh for cooking. Fish called his weapons implements of hell. The term boogeyman was at the time in reference to him. On May 28, 1928, Fish, then 58 years old, visited the Bud family in Manhattan, New York City. He was responding to a work wanted ad placed by 18-year-old Edward Bud. 
At the Bud's apartment, Fish met Edward's younger sister, 10-year-old Grace. Fish promised to hire Edward and send him for him in a few days, and in the meantime, he convinced Mr. and Mrs. Bud to let Grace accompany him to a party that evening at his home. Fish left with Grace Bud that day, but never came back. In November of 1934, an anonymous, anonymous letter was sent to the girl's parents, which led the police to Albert Fish. Dear Mrs. Bud, in 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco for Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was famine in China. Meat of any kind was from one to three dollars per pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under twelve were sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go in any shop and ask for steak chops or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body and sold as veal cutlet, brought the highest price. John said there so long he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven and one eleven took them to his home, stripped them naked, tied them in a closet, then burned everything they had on. Several times every day and night, he spanked and tortured them to make their meat good and tender. First he killed the 11-year-old boy because he had the fattest ass and of course the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten except the head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven, all of his ass, boiled, broiled, fried, and stewed. The little boy was next, went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East 100 Street near right side. He told me so often how good human flesh was, I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street, brought you pot cheese strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her. On the pretense of taking her to a party, you said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped off all my clothes. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run down the stairs. I grabbed her, and she said she would tell her mama. First I stripped her naked. How she did kick, bite, and scratch. I choked her to death, then cut her in small pieces so I could take my meat to my rooms, cook and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not f*** her, though I could have had I wished. She died a virgin. At his trial, which opened on March 11, 1935, Fish pleaded insanity. He claimed to have heard voices from God telling him to kill children. Several psychiatrists took the stand to talk of Fish's many sexual fetishes, including coprophilia, urophilia, pedophilia, and masochism, but there was disagreement as to whether these activities necessarily meant someone was insane. 
The defense's chief expert witness was Frederick Wortham, a psychiatrist with a focus on child development who conducted psychiatric examinations for the New York criminal courts. Wortham stated flatly that Fish was insane. The trial lasted for ten days. The jury found him to be sane and guilty, and the judge ordered the death sentence. Fish was executed on January 16, 1936 in the electric chair at Sing Sing. It is believed by some that he spoke of the prospect of electrocution as the supreme thrill, and even helped the executioners fasten the straps that held his body in place. A Daily News reporter who covered the trial wrote that Fish's watery eyes gleamed at the thought of being burned by a heat more intense than the flames with which he often seared his flesh to gratify his lust, though others thought that Fish did not want to die. His last words are said to have been, I don't know why I'm here. It was reported that the first jolt of electricity did not kill him, and that a second jolt was needed. A few wrote fictitiously that the 29 needles Fish had inserted into his body over the years, including his scrotal area, had caused a short circuit, causing him to remark, Is that all you got? However, this is generally considered to be erroneous, as guards insist that the first jolt did indeed kill him, and that all executed prisoners receive a second jolt as a precaution. He was buried in Sing Sing Prison Cemetery. When and where Fish first became a murderer is unknown. He confessed to six killings and referred vaguely to dozens more, although the victims' dates and places were lost to his hazy memory. He did confess to murdering a man in Wilmington, Delaware, mutilating and torturing to death a mentally retarded boy in New York in 1910, killing a Negro boy in Washington in 1919, molesting and killing four-year-old William Gaffney in 1929, and strangling to death five-year-old Francis McDonnell on Long Island in 1934. The most sensational murder carried out by Fish was the abduction and horrific slaughter of Grace Budd in 1928. The investigation into Grace Budd's disappearance was extensive and lasted for six years. The lead detective, William King, refused to retire in 1932 for the sole purpose of continuing the investigation. Very little physical evidence was uncovered, however, and Fish's involvement with the Budd family was bulletproof. All the addresses he supplied them with were fictitious, and he easily escaped suspicion, residing quietly in New York City, while the manhunt spread from the United States into Canada. The horrified detectives then made their own trip to Wisteria Cottage and recovered the skeletal remains of Grace Budd, buried in pieces beside a stone wall behind the cottage. Detective King finally had his killer, but Fish couldn't stop confessing. He described other murders that he had committed between 1910 and 1934. Much of what he told police turned out to be false or exaggerated, but he still provided enough details to convince the investigators that he had killed before. Some have even suggested that he may have killed dozens of people. The detectives were chilled to discover that Fish had been arrested in the New York area six times since the disappearance of Grace Budd, and charges that ranged from petty larceny to vagrancy to sending obscene letters through the post office. Three of the arrests occurred in the three-month period after Grace had been kidnapped, but each time the charges against him were dismissed. As for the other arrests, he walked free each time with either a short period of incarceration or a fine. No one ever guessed that the old man was a depraved killer. Fish was examined by teams of doctors and he relished the notoriety. He described his fetishes and perversions to the fascinated psychiatrist telling of inserting needles into a scrotum and inserting wool that was doused with lighter fluid into his anus and setting it on fire. 
One psychiatrist in particular, Dr. Frederick Wortham, got remarkably close to Fish before and after his trial. He later wrote that Fish looked like a meek and innocuous little old man, gentle and benevolent, friendly and polite. If you wanted someone to entrust your children to, he would be the one you would choose. However, he then went on to describe Fish as the most complex example of a polymorphous pervert he had ever known. Someone who had practiced every perversion and deviation known to man, from sodomy to sadism, eating excrement and self-mutilation. He even confessed to Wortham that he had carried Grace's ears and nose back to New York with him, wrapped in newspaper. He placed the bundle on his lap as he traveled by train and quivered with excitement as he thought about what was inside. Like the other examining physicians, Wortham judged Fish to be insane. He said that Fish was a sadist of incredible cruelty, a homosexual and a pedophile with a penchant for young children. As a self-employed painter, Fish had sculpted around basements and cellars for 50 years and preyed on scores of innocent children. He could not begin to guess how many victims the man had claimed, but I believe to the best of my knowledge, Wortham concluded, that he had raped 100 children at least. He was found guilty and sentenced to die in the electric chair. Fish had only one response to this verdict. Going to the electric chair will be the supreme thrill of my life. He came to Sing Sing Prison in 1935 carrying a Bible and handcuffed to another murderer named Stone. Dozens of appeals to save Fish were rejected and he was scheduled to die on January 16, 1936. As his appointment with the electric chair grew closer, Fish told reporters that he was looking forward to his execution. It will be the only thrill that I have not tried, he reportedly said. On January 16th, Fish ate his last meal and without aid entered the death room and walked briskly to the electric chair. He climbed into the seat and readily helped the guards fix the electrodes to his legs. The reporters and witnesses who were present were aghast at his behavior. He could barely manage to contain his joy at going to a violent death. Legend has it that death did not come as quickly as Fish might have liked. When the switch was pulled, according to the story, the first massive jolt of over 3,000 volts failed to kill him. Blue smoke appeared around him, but that was all, and it had been surmised that the needles that he had put into his body actually created a short circuit. Another prolonged and massive charge had to be sent through his body in order to execute him, or so the story that circulated went. While the old man's corpse was being taken out of the autopsy room, his defense attorney met with reporters. In his hand, he held Albert Fish's final statement, several pages of handwritten notes that he had penned in the hours before his death. To this day, the statement has never been revealed. I will never show it to anyone, Dempsey said. It was the most filthy string of obscenities that I have ever read. The legacy of Albert Fish, if you can call it that, has been published and notarized in everything from books by Stephen King to songs by Marilyn Manson to the movie House of a Thousand Corpses. For now, I'd say this case is open. So the final word on Paper Hearts, somehow you got inside my dreams. I got inside your head. You got inside mine.
What's going on out there? What's out there for paper hearts? Up first, we're going back to apartment 42, as in the apartment 42 revisited blog by Max and Radhika. Radhika starts off with, Every once in a while, an episode of The X-Files will draw upon its larger mythology in its Monster of the Week episodes, and Paper Hearts really takes that to the next level. Mind you, I still wouldn't consider this an actual mythology episode, but it preys so heavily on the vulnerabilities Mulder has after his sister's abduction that it really gives us a chance to experience the impact that event had on his personal and professional life. Paper Hearts is a beautiful episode. It has dark content, as 99.9% .9 of X-Files episodes do, but it is shot beautifully, acted beautifully, and is ultimately a compellingly told story. Paper Hearts is that ultimate what-if scenario. What if our hero's motivations for getting into the alien hunting business were all wrong all along? What if it was really something as ordinary, though horrifying, as a serial killer who targeted children that took away his sister on that fateful night? What if everything the fans believed happened never really happened? The only paranormal element here is that Mulder's dreams and Roche's psyche seem to have become interlinked, allowing Roche to gain some insight into what happened to Mulder's sister, thereby allowing him to mess with the agent's mind. But everything else is a suggestion of everyday horrors, of completely plausible, not particularly fantastic events. That's what allows the episode to tug at the heartstrings without being a schmaltzy, melodramatic mess. We, the audience, can really feel what Mulder is feeling. Those years of angst and confusion over just wanting an answer for what happened are heightened, and even though he does a few things that require some serious disciplinary action, like taking Roche into his custody without saying anything to his partner or superior, we can understand his actions here, probably even more than we have been able to in the past. We've seen hints of how Samantha's abduction causes Mulder to react to a standalone case before, but this is the most extreme situation we find in him thus far. It's an episode I fell in love with the first time I watched it, and it continues to remain a serious favorite upon every rewatch. Max has this to add. Paper Hearts is a tremendous episode, not only for its extremely haunting imagery, but for the outstanding guest turn by Tom Noonan as the villainous Roche. Noonan is one of my favorite character actors, and his performance here exemplifies his particular brand of sinister silkiness that he's brought to a number of roles. It becomes Roche's singular pleasure in absolutely screwing with Mulder's head, making him second-guess every decision and investigative deduction. And with his gentle facade, you can see how he managed to initially charm his 16 victims, luring them down the primrose path before absolutely destroying them in all manners of the word. In terms of the iconography, it was an absolutely inspired move to generate Mulder's dream world through the medium of that phantasmagoric red light. From words that hint at important elements of the crime to outlines of the eponymous trophies, this one stylistic decision is rather unique amongst not only the series as a whole, but in the whole realm of storytelling. It is something completely captivating as well as frustratingly numinous, as if it has all the answers but is unwilling to play by the rules. Another startling image is the body of Addie Sparks sinking into the ground she was buried under the cold open. It's that kind of inventiveness that makes the series continue to this day to stand out from the pack. What I think? Two things. The red light and the serial killer. Like some form of a Pied Piper, that mysterious red light leads Mulder into the night and into a completely unknown territory. 
We mentally follow the red light with him, wondering, what do these cryptic words mean? Is this a dream, or is it real? We hope that red light's leading him closer to the truth and not into disaster, but this plot device doesn't let us know right away, which is what makes it so compelling, hooking me in no matter how many times I rewatch this episode. Paper Hearts is so memorable because it, at least for a while, turns everything we think we know, and what Mulder thinks he knows, about what happened to Samantha on its head. What if it really was a human monster, not little green men from space, who took her? What would he do if this really did turn out to be the truth? Could he even trust his own memories ever again? I admit to a long-running fascination with serial killers, both real and fictional, and stories of them are so often more horrifying than any tales of someone taken by aliens. Making this an alternate reality for Samantha's fate is the other reason I find Paper Hearts such a standout episode out of this whole season. Up next, we have Knife Inc.'s review of Paper Hearts on the Review Is Out There blog. What with all the mythology involving Samantha, particularly in Season 2, there became a division between the girl Samantha Mulder and the plot device Samantha Mulder, with the latter largely overtaking the former. Not since Season 1's Conduit do we really get a chance to focus on Mulder's feelings concerning Samantha, and by the time Season 2 hits, we start to attach Samantha Mulder's name with the mythology. Think Samantha Mulder, and you immediately think clones, aliens, UFOs, the cigarette-smoking man. You don't think about a man who has spent his entire life trying to fix a tragedy that has broken him and his family apart. What Paper Hearts does is bring Samantha Mulder back to Earth by placing her in a scenario that has nothing to do with aliens, abduction, or a conspiracy. Just like in Irresistible, the horror in Paper Hearts is very human, but so too is the hero. Paper Hearts is one of my very favorite episodes for Mulder's character because it shows just how good of a person he is. It's very tempting, I think, to write Mulder off as a quirky, obsessive weirdo who can sometimes reach stupefying levels of but Paper Hearts reminds us that he has incredible levels of integrity. Just look at how he says, It's somebody, though, after learning that the girl's body isn't Samantha's. Mulder understands the humanity behind the deaths, especially in this case. Every Paper Heart for Mulder is a representation of the pain that he knows too well. But Mulder is also incredibly sympathetic and mindful. I tend to disagree with Skinner a little when he accuses Mulder's personal feelings of clouding his judgment. They may cloud his practical judgment surrounding Roche, but they sure as hell don't cloud his desire to put the victims to rest. Samantha, or no Samantha. Mulder seems to think that at the end of the day, the aliens, conspiracy, the truth, nothing is as important as finding out what happened to Samantha. Even if it turns out that Roche killed her. Even if aliens weren't involved at all. But what Mulder learns in Paper Hearts is that Samantha is something that can and will occasionally have to be sacrificed whether it's to save the life of a little girl, or for Scully's sake, or even for his own sake, Samantha, the person, not the plot device, will only be put to rest if Mulder takes care of the people in his life first. And that's a beautiful message we can all take something from, don't you think? What do I think? Yes, I think so too. It is a beautiful message. Quite a different point of view on Paper Hearts here, and I like that. Especially how it points out the humanity and empathy on several levels that can sometimes be easy to miss in Agent Fox Mulder. As always, drop by our show notes page at xfilestruth.com and check out the links to the full versions of both these reviews. My final word on Paper Hearts? A dream is an answer to a question we haven't yet figured out how to ask. 
Character Profiles. But these aren't humans, Scully. Profiles in Character. From the look of it, I'd say they were alien. This week's profile, John Lee Roche, as portrayed by Tom Noonan. John Lee Roche was a convicted child molester and serial murderer arrested by Fox Mulder in 1990. While in prison, he confessed during a polygraph test to 13 murders. He also cut out heart-shaped mementos from his victim's clothing. In 1996, Mulder had a vivid dream that led him to a 14th victim in Manassas, Virginia. Upon discovering a heart-shaped cutout, Mulder knew Roche was responsible and, with Scully, went to visit him in prison. Roche said he confessed to 13 murders because the number seemed more magical. After visiting with the victim's father, Frank Sparks, Mulder had a flash of realization as to the whereabouts of Roche's hearts and sought out the current owner of Roche's white El Camino. Sure enough, the hearts were discovered within the pages of Alice in Wonderland, all 16 of them. Mulder and Scully returned to Roche, demanding to know the identities of the two additional victims. The case became very personal for Mulder, who believed he was developing a psychic connection to Roche, and that one of the victims was his sister. Roche agreed to give the location of one of the victims, who was soon discovered. Mulder was convinced that it was his sister until he realized that the body's left collarbone was not broken like his sister's had been. That left only one heart. Mulder made some phone calls and arranged to transport Roche to Martha's Vineyard with him to locate Samantha's body. Scully had learned that Roche lived in Boston during the early 1970s, and most of his killings were done near where he lived. He also worked as a vacuum salesman for ElectroVac and sold a vacuum to William Mulder. On Martha's Vineyard, Roche gave a vividly detailed account of his kidnapping of Samantha, which Mulder realized was all a sham. They were not even in the right house that Roche claimed to have done everything in. Furious, Mulder brought Roche back to the hotel, still in handcuffs. However, during the night, Mulder experienced another vivid dream and awoke to discover Roche had escaped and that Mulder had been handcuffed to a table. By this time, Scully and Skinner had traveled from Washington and were shocked to find that Mulder had been outmaneuvered by Roche, who had also taken his badge and gun. Mulder knew where Roche would go, however. On the airplane, he had shown interest in a little girl named Caitlin Ross who lived in Boston and planned to relive his past crimes. Mulder led a team to Revere, Massachusetts and discovered Roche and the girl in an abandoned train car. Roche sat behind the girl with Mulder's gun pointed at her back. Mulder approached Roche with his second pistol, pleading with him to let her go. Scully and Skinner watched the drama unfold with their own weapons drawn as well. Mulder asked Caitlin to count to 20 and demanded that Roche let her go. Roche taunted Mulder that the last remaining heart might very well be that of Samantha, but Mulder had grown tired of Roche's mind games. As Caitlin reached 20, Mulder shot Roche dead with a bullet to the head at point-blank range. Paper Hearts was written specifically with Tom Noonan in mind for the role of Roche, and was amongst the first television work the actor had done. Writer Vince Gilligan came up with the concept for the episode when thinking about the series' longest-running storyline, The Abduction of Samantha Mulder. Gilligan came up with a story questioning whether Samantha had not been abducted by aliens, but was rather murdered by a child killer instead. He decided to help convince Fox Mulder on this through a series of prophetic dreams. The laser lights in Mulder's dreams were influenced by Gilligan's experience with laser holograms while he was a film student. 
The laser was supposed to be the color blue, but was changed to red in production to reduce costs. Wanting to include some kind of fetish for the killer, Gilligan settled on having Roche cut heart-shaped fragments from his victim's clothing, thinking that having him mutilate his victim's bodies would be going too far. Guest actor Tom Noonan, who played the killer John Lee Roche, recalled filming the scene in which his characters introduced playing basketball in prison. Noonan, a capable basketball player, was asked to downplay how well he could play, although he regretted not being able to play against David Duchovny, who had played basketball for Princeton. Episode writer Vince Gilligan and director Rob Bowman assert that Duchovny's successful basketball shot in this scene was filmed in just one take, without special effects. While the episode was the 8th produced in the season, it was the 10th aired, having been delayed to free up production resources for the two-part episodes Tunguska and Terma. The episode's climactic scene was filmed in a bus graveyard in Surrey, British Columbia, a location which had been scouted months previously when the intention of eventually including it in an episode of the series, although filming at the location did not even last a full day despite the long wait to use it. At six feet seven, Noonan's imposing presence is probably responsible for his tendency to be cast as menacing villains. In 1986, Noonan played Francis Dollerhide, a serial killer who kills entire families, in Michael Mann's Manhunter, the first movie to feature Hannibal Lecter. Another support, supporting role in another collaboration with director Mann was in 1995 as Kelso in Heat. He also played the Frankenstein monster in The Monster Squad, and in 2009 in a really cool 80s set satanic horror movie, The House of the Devil. Lie of a 7-Eleven With a picture of you Like a picture of heaven But my tears fall down Upon the wheel Breaking apart is how I feel Have you checked your email? I found these in my email this morning And now the female with the emails Agent Angela Hi everyone First up, we've got a handful of new Facebook likes in the past couple of weeks, so thanks and welcome to you guys who are new for that. And we got a Twitter shout out from Maria Nebels. It says, I love this show, never to forget it. Same here, Maria. Same here. We're never going to forget it either, and January seems so far away when we think about the X-Files revival sometimes. Our friend Knifeink, who runs the Review Is Out There blog, made and posted a very cool X-Files anniversary card, which I also shared on Twitter. It was, of course, on September 10th, so go check that out on our Twitter page. I've been sharing quite a bit about the X-Files revival on both of our social pages, just news as I run across it, so you guys are encouraged to check that out if you haven't already. I tend to retweet or repost it as soon as I see it. There is one of notes. According to an article in the International Business Times, Fox will be doing an advanced screening of the brand new X-Files episodes at New York Comic Con on October 10th. I'm just going to read a couple of excerpts of note. The truth may be out there, but for a lucky subset of the X-Files fans attending New York Comic Con in October, it's closer than ever. Fox's blockbuster sci-fi series, starring David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson as paranormal investigators Fox Mulder and Dana Scully, has been scheduled to make its long-awaited return to television in January, 
13 years after the show went off the air. For some fans, the network's decision to screen the full premiere episode at a convention so far in advance of the air date has turned into an X-Files-style mystery itself. Fox declined to comment on the Comic-Con screening, which will be followed by a question-and-answer session with series creator and executive producer Chris Carter and star David Duchovny. Not everyone is thrilled about the move. Many X-Files fans lamented on social media that they were missing out, especially because tickets to New York Comic-Con sold out when they went on sale in the spring. Um, yeah. Understandable, in my opinion. What do you guys think about this decision on the part of Fox to have this premiere so far in advance at Comic-Con? Let us know. And on a somewhat related note, looks like there's an online petition going around on Change.org to get David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson to attend the X-Files revival premiere together. Yeah, sounds good to me. Naturally. So I retweeted a link to that on September 13th if you guys want to check that out too. That's what I've got for this time around. As always, a big thank you to you guys who got in touch with us. We love hearing from our listeners. If you guys have been enjoying, been enjoying the podcast, we'd also love it if you'd leave us a star rating or a review on iTunes. It doesn't have to be long, just what you think. And of course, if you've got any thoughts on anything X-Files, old or new, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at xfilestruth.live.com, or you could record yourself in an MP3 file and we'll play it on the next podcast episode. If you haven't already, be sure to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash xfilestruthpodcast, and follow us on Twitter at xfiles underscore truth. The truth is still out there, and it's never been more dangerous. Everybody turn around to the sound of my breaking heart Just burn, everybody take a turn Light a match under my paper heart Yeah, oh, come on Next time on X-Files Truth, Mulder and Scully investigate California migrant workers' claims that El Chupacabra, a gray, hairless creature out of Mexican folklore, is responsible for a series of mutilation deaths. Closes the file for Paper Hearts, a much better episode than I remembered. I'm glad I got a chance to rewatch it again. Don't forget to check out the website if you can, xfilestruth.com. And I know everybody's looking forward to the new season of the X Files coming out in January. That's going to be really good. I can't wait for that. 
So we will see you all next month for El Mundo Guerra. Did you like that one, puppies? I made this. 20th Century Fox. Sir, can I help you? Yes, please. May I speak to the person in charge? That's me. Uh, I'm Special Agent Mulder. Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, you have a child here named Caitlin Ross? Yes, why? Well, Caitlin's mother, Marlene Ross, had an accident this morning. Uh, she collided with federal agents during a suspect pursuit. Oh, my God. And, and I'm here to take Caitlin to the hospital. Uh, her mother's asking for her. I'm not sure I can just release her to you. Oh, I understand completely. Uh... You're welcome to call the hospital. It's Saugus Catholic. And my badge number is JTT 047 111. Please, sorry, she doesn't have much time. Caitlin?